Welcome to Ideas at Work, a podcast featuring conversations with scientists, academics, writers, and thinkers who are influencing our time. My completely unoriginal premise is the world has changed. Those ideas that we once believed to be true will now be viewed through an entirely different lens post-COVID-19. Um, what this podcast will not be, we will not be discussing current events in the light of what to do now or even what to do shortly in a potential return to normal. What I'm much more interested in discussing is the emergence of a new normal. What changes, what stays the same, and what slips into the annals of history? Also, my viewpoint is anchored in two things. One, in organizations, what is the role of the company in these new and turbulent times? And secondly, what are the main ideas we need to consider or reconsider? I will not be talking to interesting people with interesting viewpoints who have done interesting things, but rather diving into conversations with people who I think are propagating the most important ideas that inform our situation. This emerging new normal begins with imagining what can be. To do this, let's start by understanding what is. Today, I'll be chatting with David Sloan Wilson. David is an American evolutionary biologist and a distinguished professor of biological sciences and anthropology at Binghamton University. He's known for his many books describing the broad applicability of evolutionary theory to more than just biology. Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution for Everyone, Pro-Social, This View of Life, all treat evolution as the meta-toolkit in understanding human behavior, culture, and society. I plan to discuss David Sloan Wilson's specific evolutionary theory that he has championed multi-level selection, and its importance in understanding how humans have evolved to become social creatures. Um, you should know, multi-level selection is one of the most long-standing controversies in evolutionary thought. For some, it's the logical extension of Darwin's own theory, required to explain how adaptations can evolve at any level of a multi-tier hierarchy of units, such as, how, how do we go from genes to ecosystems in biology, or how do we go from small groups to nation states to global governance in human social systems? For others, it's a theory that was rejected over half a century ago and needs to be thrown on the scrap pile of history. If, and this is a big if, but if multi-level selection were proven to be true, it demands a complete reevaluation of our moral philosophy, the epistemic foundation of who we think we are, the typical paradox of human behavior, how we can be so kind, benevolent, and altruistic on one hand, and so avaricious, self-interested, and violent on the other hand, now with multi-level selection, can be explained through a simple axiom. Selfishness beats altruism within groups. Altruistic groups beat selfish groups. Everything else is common. The importance of Wilson's thinking in these times of crisis cannot be overstated. As our normal perceptions of who we are begin to fray in the light of a complete complete economic collapse and global pandemic. Who and what are we as human beings? Are we competitors or cooperators? Are we selfish atoms or universal altruists? I suspect there will be now a great sorting as some ideas and thus some organizations will wither and others will prosper. As organizational people, we need to ask ourselves why. Are there ideas that can make organizations, societies, and all of humanity flourish? We have no better guide than David Stone Wilson. David, Welcome to Ideas at Work. Well, thank you very much. What a fabulous introduction. Just the, the foundation of our whole moral philosophy. That's what's <laughs> at stake here, David. That's all. That's all. Stay <laughs> tuned, everyone. Yeah, yeah. So uh, do you, first off, do you, do you agree with me? Do you think we're at sort of epoch-defining times, a sort of AD and BC line will be drawn from here on in with COVID-19? I hope so. 
And I think that uh, what COVID-19 did was clarify something that existed before. Before COVID-19, we had global warming, massive inequality, uh, so much that we wanted to change. So the calls for change were not in short supply, but they weren't even close to being heated. Now there's something about uh, COVID-19 that really grabs the attention of the world and re reveals the need for worldwide cooperation. Um, but once we, if we can achieve that, then uh, we can achieve it in many respects. Right. So it is, um, it is an epic defining event, uh, at least we hope so, because there is an alternative scenario, which is we slide back into our old habits mm. and uh, we don't change even though we need to. Mm -hmm. um, what, what does your research tell us about uh, plagues or pandemics in general? Is, is there, a, is there a, a through line between multi-level selection and uh, viruses? There's a lot of through lines. And one thing about evolution, as you alluded to in my many books, is that it uh, has multiple points of, of entry. So we could use evolution to explain the genetic evolution of the virus. Um, virulence is a good example of a trait in a, a disease, which uh, almost always confers a within host advantage. The virulence strain outcompetes the less virulent strain within each and every host. Uh, but the virulent strain that kills the host before before the disease can be transmitted to other hosts is now negatively selected at the at the between group level. So there's a multi-level selection story to be told just at the level of the genetic evolution of the disease. But then there's the cultural dimension. What we do, our practices are also traits that evolve by cultural evolution. And the same toolkit can be applied to all of uh, all of that. So uh, there you mm -hmm. go. I mean, uh, evolution is as as uh, uh, being much more than genetic evolution is the thing that uh, only a few people know. You get it. I get it. Jonathan Haidt gets it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so many people, when they think of evolution, they hear the word genes. And they don't think to apply the same toolkit mm -hmm. to all of our behaviors and the and the dire need for change. Right, right. Yeah, it has been said that evolution may be the most profound idea a human being has ever come up with, um, a revolutionary idea and, and an idea, uh, a revolution that you say has has yet even to be completed and barely started. And to your point that it applies not just to biology and to genes, but to many other phenomena like societies and culture, et cetera. Maybe take us a, take us, give us a broad picture of how that works. Like, so start maybe with like what's view is from a genetic perspective and then maybe extrapolate for us, for us out to how it applies to cultures and societies and organizations. So it turns out that's not a, that's a, a pretty easy ask because not only is evolution such a powerful theory, but it's also such a simple theory. Right. And, uh, and it can literally be described in three words, uh, selection, variation, and replication. So mm -hmm. uh, what Darwin noted was that just about everything that we can measure varies, uh, that these differences make a difference in terms of survival and reproduction, and that traits tend to replicate over time, offspring tend to resemble their parents. And you put those three simple ingredients together 
And then you get these implications, namely, uh, populations don't stay the, cha uh, stay, the, stay the same over time. They change. Uh, they change right. in a direction. They change in the direction that traits, favoring traits that enhance survival and reproduction. Uh, individuals become more fit in relation mm -hmm. to their environments. End of story. And so um, in my book, Evolution for Everyone, I say that learning about natural selection is like having a premature orgasm. You think that it'll take a long time and build to a tremendous climax, but then it's over almost as soon as it began. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting analogy. Um, so you know, but the but but the just to just to continue, uh, Darwin knew nothing about genes, right? And uh, but for most of the 20th century, with the advent of genetics. The study of evolution became constricted to the study of genetic evolution, as if the only way the parents' offspring can resemble their parents is by sharing the same genes. Right. And it was not until the closing decades of the uh, 20th century that evolutionists went back to basics and they defined evolution as any process that includes those three ingredients of selection, variation, and and replication. And it's that's the great opening, the great generalization that we are now witnessing today. That new epic that you're talking about will be when that becomes common knowledge and everyone understands, identifies evolutionary processes in all their forms, wherever mm -hmm. they exist. Yeah, no, fascinating. So there's there's two really interesting stories at play here, I think. Um, one is just how how profound the implications will be, as you suggest, when everyone understands what uh, how evolution works from a cultural perspective, from an organizational perspective, indeed from a multi-level um, selection perspective. So that's that's one story, the story of the idea. And then there's this other story. It's it's a more personal story about how that idea was championed by you in the teeth of scientific orthodoxy, and and that story. Is almost like, it's almost like a Hollywood movie story in some respects, or at least maybe from an outsider, that's, that can be how it's viewed. Um, so let's park the first story, which is the idea, which is the one I'm really, really keen on um, exploring, especially from an organizational perspective. But let's touch on that second story. So how did you come um, to this idea? And how, how was it to be sort of alone in the wilderness with it when everyone thought it was the wrong idea? Well, for me, um, and I don't want to romanticize it too much. For one thing, I was not the only one, there, but there was a handful. So the idea yep. that this was a renegade idea, for sure. And we really want to ask the question, why is it that uh, group selection was rejected so forcefully uh, when it was? And that brings us to a point that I want to make, having to do with broad intellectual history. The middle of the 20th century was uh, remarkable for uh, individualism across the board. So in my yep. field of evolutionary biology, we had the theory of individual selection, and then we had selfish genes, the idea that everything that evolves can be explained as adaptive at the level of individuals or their genes. But next door, in the field of economics, we had, of course, homo economicus, rational choice theory, where everything that people do is a matter of individuals maximizing their utilities. And next door to that, in the social sciences, we have methodological individualism, 
that we don't really understand uh, human society. All things social need to be boiled down to individual thoughts and action. Next door to that, we have Margaret Thatcher, who says there's no such thing as society, only individuals and their families. So there's some Kool-Aid that everyone was drinking <laughs> back in that period of time. Go ahead, take your turn. Well, no, no, I, I'm, I'm in total agreement. And so, you know, you could call this uh, atomic reductionism, let's say, you know, trying to get to the lowest um, constituent, the lowest uh, common entity that describes a system. Um, in a way, is that just not the fruition of Western science? Like, are we, are we surprised? Like every discipline has gone through that same reductionist approach before it f finds a new synthesis again and, and discovers its own sort of complexity. Is that, is it, do you put any stock in that? Uh, yes, no, no, I think that's, I do, uh, I, I want to reinforce it because uh, this is a cycle that um, many lines of inquiry have gone through. I would describe it this way. In the days before mathematics or any other formal modeling method, people thought in words, and when they did, they always appreciated the rich tapestry of life, the complexity of everything that lay around us, because mm -hmm. after all, we do live in a very complex world. With the onset of formal modeling tools, starting with analytical mathematics, this seemed to provide an amazing tool for making sense of this complex world around us. But mathematics has a dirty little secret it's a very precise language, but in order to be so precise, it has to make simplifying assumptions ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. And and so the world that's, that's contained in mathematical equations is actually a simple world that cannot incorporate complexity very mm -hmm. easily. And my favorite example of that is the, uh, the, the two-body problem and the three-body problem in in physics. So Newton was mm -hmm. able to predict the trajectories of orbiting bodies in, in space. And two orbiting bodies, uh, they have a very, you know, they rotate around each other as they travel in a, in a direction. But if you were to add a single third body to those two bodies, and now they're all influencing their trajectories with their gravitational pulls, that looks like a plate of spaghetti. And so going right. from two two bodies to three bodies hits a kind of a complexity wall, never mind multiple bodies. And there's a beautiful illustration um, of this that anyone could look up on, on YouTube. Imagine a pendulum, the, the, the standard pendulum that just goes back and forth, back and forth. So that's simple, totally predictable. Well, it turns out that there's pendulums that have multiple links. They're jointed oh. pendulums. <laughs> jointed pendulums they might have three or four joints and but they're otherwise they're just pendulums look that up on youtube right and what you find is the pendulum traces as it swings back and forth the most amazing picture of its trajectory huh. and and each one is unique if you start the pendulum at a different starting position even infinitesimally different than the original starting position that's what's called sensitive dependence on initial condition, it mm -hmm. traces a different picture. And so right. what happened was that in this transition to going beyond words in our modeling efforts from words to mathematics ended up, without anyone knowing it, to be a denial 
of complexity. And mm -hmm. so that was that was insightful in many, many ways, of course. Um, I love mathematical models and I do them myself, but uh, but it it had to reveal its limitations in order to gain a newfound appreciation of complexity. What previously was was appreciated verbally, now mm. we can appreciate more formally only with the advent of widespread computing methods. Can right. we build the kind of complex models that can um, apprehend uh, our complexity? And so once again, it was not until the closing decades of the 20th century that these computing methods were available. And so as mm. we talk about epical changes, um, that is that is uh, one of them, which is bringing us out of this reductionistic, individualistic age and mm -hmm. into an age which, which can actually do justice to complexity with our analytical tools. Right. And, and you know, that's, you know, uh, why that's so important to us as organizational people, uh, of course, because, you know, the models and the metaphors that we have um, define who we think we can be and how we think we should act. You know, so this takes us back to your point about, are we just reductionistic atoms? Are we, especially, especially from a corporate enterprise, are we homo economicus? Are we rational actors? You know, does the invisible hand, is that enough of an explanation of how we operate? These are, you know, even, even the people where I speak to, and they're like, oh, like, this is all highfalutin stuff. I don't need to know about my epistemic foundations. They'll say that. And the next thing they'll say is, you know, because I, I know that nature's red in tooth and claw and here's how we need to compete. And, and, <laughs> here's and, my epistemic foundation. <laughs> right. Uh, completely unscrutinized. And so that's, this is why I think sitting with your ideas are, and the implications of them are so important. You know, it also as an aside, I was trying to take us down the, the Hollywood story of, of your life, but we, we ended up good. Uh, getting right back to the ideas again. So, but may, maybe give us a little color about what it was like um, in the days where you really were, although there were a few of you, you were alone in the wilderness. What what was your sustenance? Why did you think this was such a, why were you called to, to champion this idea of group selection and multi-level selection? Well, in the first place, um, I was uh, ambitious. And so for me, to revive group selection was a, a way to make my mark. I didn't run away from it, I ran towards it. Mm -hmm. In the second place, I had a kind of a conventional moral upbringing. It was not religious, but it was moral. And it offended me that the idea of niceness could not evolve as a product of evolution. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, a voice within me said. I can't explain how something that deserves to be called nice at face value can't evolve by a Darwinian process. And so on the one hand, it was my intuition that there should be uh, an explanation for why altruism and all of the forms of niceness can exist. And in the second place, I'd make my mark if I, if I did so. And in the third place, and this is a really nice comment to be made about scientific culture, it does not always work out this way. But for the most part, um, my interactions with my adversaries were pleasant, and cordial. I was the happy warrior. Yeah. And my my um, my opponents, especially George C. Williams, who was the real authority prior to Richard Dawkins, um, at the time was a, was a very good friend of mine. 
And so it was the great fight. And it was done in a way that's done, I think, much as with sports. I know that you're a sports, mm -hmm. avid sports person and that you play rugby. This is where you, you know, you basically try to throw your opponent to the mat and mm -hmm. then you go out for a beer. And so mm -hmm. I'm very happy to report that with some exceptions, um, this was uh, the best kind of, of, uh, of uh, contact sport, basically an intellectual contact sport with that same right. kind of camaraderie. Isn't it nice to know that that could happen? Yeah, no, it is. It's very reassuring. Um, maybe, maybe unpack that aphorism that you coined with E.O. Wilson, um, just because I think there's so much in it. Um, and it, it, it's sort of something that I suspect everyone should have emblazoned above their doorway. Right. Well, thank you for that. And I think that now that we've talked about individualism a little bit, mm -hmm. we can understand how some ideas, not just in evolution, uh, but across the board, would seem to be soundly rejected during that period of our cultural history. And then and then become fully revived for the best of reasons and even to appear obvious in retrospect right so so the rejection of uh, of group selection is uh, is is no more uh, a uh, condemnation of it than than um the rejection of other uh more uh, social and and uh, organicist views of uh of society so at the end of the day when we when we emerge from this strange period, I think will, will be known as a kind of a strange period of intellectual thought, we could make some statements that are as simple and compelling as Darwin's three ingredients of natural, uh, natural selection. We've already talked about uh, selection variation and, and replication. And as Darwin thought about this, at first he, he thought that his theory could explain all aspects of design that had been attributed to a a creator. Mm -hmm. How amazing is that? Mm -hmm. But then he realized that there was an exception to that rule, which was all of the behaviors that are considered moral in human terms, the altruist, the brave individual, the honest individual, the solid citizen, all by definition are working, spending their time, energy and risk on behalf of their societies on their groups. And that makes them vulnerable Right. to all of the behaviors that we associate with immorality. Right. If natural selection is all about individuals surviving and reproducing than other individuals, then the advantage goes to the selfish individual, not the altruist. And so that mm. makes altruism a puzzle and altruism in all its forms. Right. And uh, so Darwin uh, came to that realization. By the way, it was gradual. It was not sudden, but uh, increasingly he came to that realization and that forced him to add something to his theory in order to explain this very important class of behaviors. And that something very simply was that even though selfishness beats altruism within groups, that's the first part of the mantra, yep. it's, e it's equally the case that groups of whose members cooperate uh, behave in a moral fashion will robustly outcompete groups whose members cannot cohere, as Darwin right. put it. Yep. And so, actually, his theory could explain uh, niceness in all of its forms, uh, but only by a process of between group selection. Traits that are for the good of the group, 
require a process of between group selection. Right. <laughs> so right. altruistic groups beat selfish groups. Everything else is commentary. So right. that actually, at the end of the day, is uh, is the, the like the robust truth, which can be seen as a addendum that was forced upon Darwin in order to complete his theory of natural selection. I think that's mm -hmm. uh, when the dust settles, that's the truth that emerges. Mm -hmm. And it's a truth can be very easily uh, taught and understood. Yeah, it, it's, I must say, particularly self evident, that those are two creative tensions when you're within an organization, you know, as an organizational person, that that seems to be a truism, that they're one that there's uh, between group selection, that I mean, that seems to be so obvious. What what else are we doing in some respects as companies, but trying to hone our benefits to outcompete other companies? And yet there's another selection process going on within companies, and yet there's another selection process on top of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about those, the interplay of those sort of cascading hierarchies of selection pressures and what they might mean for organizations? Uh, sure. And as you know, I use the game of Monopoly to, to uh, state it in the briefest possible way. Just imagine mm -hmm. playing the single game of Monopoly. That's within group competition. You are right. playing the game to drive everyone else bankrupt. Right. Now imagine playing a Monopoly tournament in which the team that, that uh, collectively develops its property uh, wins the trophy. Well, now you're, every decision you make will be will be different because mm -hmm. the the level of competition is now at the between team level as opposed to the within team level. So just take that. So easy to understand and metaphorically transport it to your business, to your workplace. And you can yep. see that uh, wherever you work, it's going to be a densely multi-level, multi-group context. You're going to work someplace in your organization You'll have some department and unit or whatever, some team. Shopify has its teams of gurus that are working with their uh, with their uh, uh, clients. Those are among the smaller teams. It goes all the way up to top uh, yep. management divisions and all of that. And at every rung of that ladder, it's not you know strictly like nested dolls because it's more like a a dense network of of groups. But in every every case no matter what the grouping is, mm -hmm. then there are opportunities for advantage within the group, and that's typically not good for the group. Right. And there's the, the teamwork that's required for that group to function as a unit on its own and in, in relation to all those other groups. And even though you mentioned that in the business world, group, uh, companies are competing against other companies, that's true to a degree. But of course, they're also collaborating and cooperating with many other groups, the whole value chain and, yep. and supply chain and, and the clients and the customers. And, mm -hmm. and so, um, the, uh, so that, that, needs to be, that needs to be said. And this very simple rule, selfishness beats altruism within groups, altruistic groups beat selfish groups, is applying in all of those different uh, context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what I what I love about it, um, as you as you stated before, it's so parsimonious, it's so simple, uh, but, it, but it contains so much. And it's also so intuitive. Like I think if you were to tell people, everyone would go, yeah, I think that makes sense. 
But now, and this is the most important thing, it gives you a mechanism or a toolkit to unpack where things are working and where things aren't working, how to make sort of more harmonious cooperation and where to put more intense competition. And what, and so maybe talk a little bit about um, that toolkit and, and potentially introduce us to the ideas of Eleanor Ostrom. Uh, sure. Let me just pause to organize my thoughts just a little bit because, uh, you know, when we were talking about complexity, yeah, that sounded, that sounded kind of complex. <laughs> Models, <laughs> you know, math, you yeah, know, yeah. stuff like that. That makes it sound yeah. like beyond the average person's uh, capacity. Uh, but what's really special about, about uh, this toolkit that we're talking about is how intuitive it can be more like those three ingredients right. that I was talking about and the little mantra about selfishness um, and altruism within and between our groups. This can become like riding a bicycle, basically. Once you've learned it, right. then it's, that, it's second nature to you. And a lot of my writing, including uh, my, my newest book, This View of Life, is, is basically getting to people to kind of learn how to ride that, uh, ride that bicycle. And um, there's a uh, you know multiple tools in the toolkit, but the one I'll focus on is the one from Eleanor Ostrom. Uh, lots of lessons there. Who was she? Uh, she was a political scientist. Uh, how famous is she? Well, she won the Nobel Prize. How's that for you? Uh, but uh, <laughs> but despite that, uh, when she did win the Nobel Prize in economics, she was unknown to most economists. And mm -hmm. to this day, to this day, when I ask audiences who all knows about Eleanor Ostrom, I get only a smattering of mm. hands. And this illustrates something I'd like to emphasize, which is uh, the idea of a knowledge archipelago and a practice archipelago. Mm. That uh, because we don't have general ways of communicating with each other, then uh, the way you know the way we think, whether it's informal thinking or formal academic thinking and the ways that we practice uh, whether informed by some theory or not all of these have an archipelago like uh, quality to them they're very local they spread to a degree based on their success but then they come up against boundaries mm -hmm. cultural boundaries or 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 vocabulary boundaries beyond which they're unknown and so here's a case of of someone who became very famous within her island of the archipelago and is unknown beyond those boundaries. And one of the things that we've done here, I think very successfully, is to is to uh, transcend those, those archipelago-like boundaries and to be able to describe this in a way that anybody can understand, no matter what their group, no matter what their context. That's one of the great accomplishments of the... Uh, of the evolutionary perspective. So what did she do? She studied the famous tragedy of the commons. That's one that a lot of people know about. Yep. That's the tendency of, of um, people to overexploit their their uh, resources, take more than their their share. And, and yep. the conventional economic wisdom held that the only solutions to the tragedy of the commons is to privatize it if you can, or imposed top-down regulation. And yep. what uh, Ostrom showed is that uh, to the contrary, if you actually study groups managing common pool resources, some but not all, this is important, only some, not all, can manage 
their natural pool resources on their own, on their own. They don't need to privatize it. They don't need top-down regulation. They're doing something that works. What is it? And yeah. so her, her main accomplishment was to identify the core design principles, as she called them. And, and David, just to, sorry to interrupt. She also discovered, that, and just to make sure you're unclear about this, these were this was pan-cultural. These were different cultures, different races on different continents that all shared these same principles. Am, am I correct? That's right. Yeah. Yep, including both modern examples and very traditional. Yep. Example. So yeah, I mean, we're talking about something that's a great point for you to make, culturally universal. Mm -hmm. So I could, if we like, uh, list those principles in less than a minute. They, they're they right up there with uh, Darwin's theory of evolution in terms of like, yeah, well, yeah, well, would, uh, how stupid of me not to have thought of those. So uh, and, and, shall I just and, list them, fire them off? Yeah. And just before you do, I, I just want to I just want to anchor it and why it's so important for organizational folks to understand these, because for me, what the principles suggest um, is that there is a way of navigating the group selection problem. Because if, if if groups are essentially competing against one another, why is there not always a war uh, of all against all now at the group level instead of the atomic level, the genetic level or the individual level? And Ostrom gives us some hint of, of why things can be shared and there actually can be some peace. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, the um, one of the most important events in my life was to work with Eleanor and to and to uh, and to basically to integrate her her work with multi-level selection theory that we've already talked about. Yep. And the best way for me to describe that integration is to first rattle off those core design principles and then to show how nicely they map onto what we've already discussed, multi-level selection theory. Yeah. Yeah. And to introduce and to introduce the idea of a major revolutionary transition, which will be another important tool in the in the uh, in the toolkit. So uh, so here we go. Here are the eight core design principles that cause enable groups to manage their common pool our resources. Yep. Number one, a strong sense of identity and purpose. The group has to know what they're about. What is their resource? Who's a member? Who can draw upon it? So clear boundaries to the group and who's in the group and the fact that the group is important. Number two, proportional costs and benefits. Not sustainable for some members to get most of the benefits and others to support most of the costs. There has to be some sense in which what you get from the group is proportional to what you give to the group. Number three, fair and inclusive decision-making. Not sustainable for some members of the group to get to make the decisions without consulting with the others. Must be an open and equitable process for two reasons. One is that's when, when the full knowledge base of the group can be drawn upon. And number mm. two, that's going to ensure fairness, because if some people are cut out of the decision-making process, that's a recipe for unfairness. Number four, monitoring agreed-upon uh, behaviors. So unless we know, unless it's transparent what we're doing, then, of course, we have no way of knowing if we're doing it or not. Number five, graduated sanctions. If we're not doing what we should, something must be done. But it need not start out mean or harsh. A friendly reminder is typically enough. But it also must be necessary to 
um, escalate. And uh, this is actually something that we've added importantly to that core design principle. There needs to be positive rewards for good behavior in addition to negative sanctions uh, against bad uh, right. behavior. That's especially true in a corporate in a corporate uh, setting. Number six, fast and fair conflict resolution. Conflicts will occur. They need to be resolved quickly and right. in a manner that's respectful to both parties. In a dispute, most people think they have a point of view. Number seven, um, authority to self-govern. Uh, a group must have elbow room to do those other things. Yeah. If they're being bossed around from above, then they just can't do what they know they should be doing. Think about that in a corporate setting. And then number eight, appropriate relations with other groups. And this is the remarkable fact is, is that these core design principles are scale independent. They are needed to govern relations among groups just as much as within groups, all mm -hmm. the way up to the largest groups of all, the nations and the giant corporations that inhabit the global village. And so it's here that we're going to get to, uh, there's many points of connection with a major corporation such as Shopify. Yep. Yeah, okay, so lots to uh, dig into there. So. Um, one of the things, as you know, we're trying to use these principles to reorganize ourselves to make sure that we are um, as agile as possible and as in keeping with sort of evolutionary theory as possible under the assumption that that will make us uh, more competitive as an organization. This, this is my thesis. Um, the, so the, the one, the sticking point that we've discovered in practice is seven, the authority to self-govern. So much of a corporation is in fact about who grants authority to whom to do what. And, and so, you know, self-governing is, is a really difficult thing. Like what's an order? How do you give it and how do you interpret it? And, you know, we like to think we're fairly um, horizontal here in our, and how we uh, uh, deal with authority. We like to think we're sort of relationship-based. We're certainly not a holacracy, but um, we, we like to give a broad swath of gray for the interpretation of authority, but we have found that to be the most um, difficult one to really sort of unpack. Do I have authority to do these things? Do you have any? Do you have any comment on um, why we're sticking on authority, or just any sort of thoughts on authority in general? Well, one point to make is to acknowledge the complexity of the problem. Right. Uh, I mean, even a single group is complicated enough. But when you're dealing with a major corporation, uh, which is uh, highly multi-level, well, that's a, it's not a wicked problem. That's not quite the, the, right, the right phrase, but it's a very, very complex right. problem. So there's point one. Uh, point two, and here's a major point I'm glad to be able to make right here because it's the theme of a series of conversations that it's uh, – about to be published on uh, my online magazine, This View of Life, which uh, basically makes the simple observation that uh, that uh, two things won't work, only one thing can work. The two things that don't work are laissez-faire, letting everyone do their lower level thing. Right. No, there's no invisible hand to save the day, friends. Sorry to break it to you. Certainly not in a corporation. No. Yeah. The other thing that doesn't work is centralized planning because right. the world is too complex for any group of experts to uh, design and implement their um, grand plan. What's left that might work? Only a managed process of cultural evolution. Right. 
only a managed process of cultural evolution. That's the bottom line. And that's what's so special about the consortium that mm -hmm. we're starting together mm -hmm. uh, with uh, John Hyden and you being the first major cultural mm -hmm. uh, a corporate uh, corporate uh, client. So we must experiment, experiment, experiment. And what we decide is going to be very context sensitive. So let's take your teams of gurus mm -hmm. that are working with clients. Or actually, let's drop into another example, one of my favorite ones. I think you're familiar with it as well. Uh, the book Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. Yes, sir. Who was in charge of U.S. forces uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq when uh, they were fighting uh, Al Qaeda. And amazingly, Al Qaeda was beating the U.S. armed forces, the most powerful military on earth was being beaten by this ragtag group of fighters. And what McChrystal did was in two stages. One is he formed small teams. Think of Navy SEAL teams yep. that could play the same game and as their opponents. And that required autonomy. When they're, you're right there and something's happening right now, well, you have to make the decision. You don't ask someone up the chain of command whether you can do something you do it right. and then you can and then you can provide a postmortem and so there's for that one context mm -hmm. you have created highly autonomous groups okay yep. might not work for other contexts but it does work for that context well he discovered in addition that it was not good enough for these teams that he created to function underneath a standard military chain of command he needed to create team of teams. Mm -hmm. And so he describes how he did that. Um, so the point being, coming back into a corporate setting, and by the way, he has become a corporate advisor. Yes. In his current in his current uh, life. And he, he's a very smart guy, knows a lot about complexity, not so much yep. about evolution. But uh, um, so what that means is it's going to depend. Yeah. And uh, I'm reminded of a book by... Uh, uh, Tim O'Reilly, the internet mm -hmm. guru, yep. has a wonderful book titled uh, WTF question mark that stands for what's the future yeah, oh, and, um, and what we can uh, do about it. And he talks about uh, some of the better aspects of the major tech companies right. and including um, Amazon, which in many ways is a very top down controlling corporation. Uh, but nevertheless, it uh, it has what they call two pizza teams. Right. Uh, in other sure. words, it has to be small enough to be fed by two pizzas. Yeah. And these pizza teams make promises. They're tasked to do something that's functional. This is what needs to be done from the, from the large corporate perspective. The team commits to doing something. They make a mm -hmm. promise, we'll do this. Mm -hmm. But then they're cut the slack that they need in order to do it. They have given the author autonomy Right. So there's a little piece of Amazon mm -hmm. that works well by granting appropriate autonomy. How that mm -hmm. works for the rest of Amazon, that's another question. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, tech up in general are pretty familiar with the sort of, you know, two pizza team concept, the small agile team that is given a lot agile, of agile scrum, yep. all of that yep. stuff. All that stuff, both both whether it's the actual agile process or small AI agile, as as I'm using it. Yeah. Um, very uh, often, uh, Toby. Very yeah. often, it's said that uh, 
that and I think it's true that uh, those teams work just great. But the problem is, is that they operate under a traditional command and control corporate hierarchy. It's like uh, it's like McChrystal before he implemented Teams of Teams. Right. So, yeah. And so, no, absolutely. And I don't know if we've we've chatted about this, but McChrystal's Team of Teams uh, fingerprints are all over. Uh, my org in that we, we had actually a very specific problem. We, we had a, a support team, the one that I run, um, who was um, getting, getting complaints about, you know, how to fix the product and, and how to tweak it. And, uh, and those, um, those fixes, those ideas and those tweaks were being cataloged and then uh, sent to the product team who, you know, were very receptive, but just things weren't changing. And what we discovered it was, and we, we um, experimented with a number of different like data ways of presenting it. So how, you know, how could we present you the, with the most germane data at the best time? And it turns out none of those um, mechanical computational solutions worked. And so what we ended up doing was embedding some of the best people on my team into the product teams to give deep context of what was going on. And soon as that, as soon as there was a human relationship between the teams, and because this is again straight from McChrystal, the people understood yep. what the problems were, and then they they acted on them immediately. So there was there was obviously there was great care before, as there was afterwards. But there, but what seemed to do the trick was these human relationships of people embedded in other teams. You know, McChrystal uses the example of you know no one from the from the uh, Navy SEALs would be interested in. Uh, talking to someone from, you know, Canadian Special Forces, talking to someone from the FBI, talking to somebody from the right, right. from the SAS, you know. But but once you are embedded with them, and then those walls come down, and it's like that that opens the floodgates to the sharing of real intelligence, and then faster yeah, action. That was uh, you know really perceptive on his part. And then here's where some evolutionary psychology comes in. Yeah, you know, just a recognition of us as biological creatures, uh, right? And that personal relationship being—you um, have to be that good an evolutionary psychologist in order to have that um, have that um, uh, that insight. So, so there's a few rules that could be. Uh, go ahead, Toby. Oh, but but it just it just also speaks to the very first rule of Ostrom, right? Which is highly functional teams know this, and if you've ever been on a highly functional team, there is a deep sense of identity. Like, like first thing, there's a deep sense of identity. And of course, the paradox is the identity forms a sort of wall of allergens that keeps other people who don't have that identity out. And that, that, that needs also, so that needs to be the vehicle that's both harnessed, you know, for the genius of good teams and broken down to make sure that a team of teams can emerge from it. And, and my only point is, as we begin to understand the mechanisms of what makes a good organism and a good organization, then we can actually build one. Like heretofore, we're trying to build organizations in the dark without any sort of theoretical architecture or understanding of how to do such a thing. Yeah, so I think that, uh, so the best case scenario is for, in the first place, for a culture, let's say a corporate culture, a corporation, to really drink in these ideas um, and to appreciate their amazing generality and applicability to uh, the organization. At that point, then, what's needed is an experimental approach where being open to the ideas, you now try something out and you see if it works. And the assessment has to be systemic. That's another point because, uh, because it is a complex world. Then uh, even if you implement a single new procedure, you really need to know how it 
It's going to ramify through the system to know what the net effects are. And I have in my book, This View of Life, I talk about Toyota as a wonderful example um, Mm. of that. So this calls for the factor that when we manage our cultural evolution at the corporate scale, then we need to be systemic for all three ingredients. We need to be systemic about the target of selection. What we do has to benefit the performance of the whole organization, no matter where it's implemented. And if you can't assess that back to monitoring, well, forget about it. Uh So you have to assess it. And then you need to orient variation around that target. It's not any variation will do. It's just, you know, what's likely to work given the task at hand. And then if we have a candidate, something that works, then we have to replicate it, always being attentive to context, because what works here might not even work there, even within the organization. What worked in the HR department might not work for the consultant teams. It's experiment, 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 and using the tools of science to to, uh, do that. And the best the theory can do is to winnow the field of possibilities in what you're trying to to do, to come up with the most likely ideas. And of course, if you have the wrong theories, such as homo economicus, then the most likely ideas are likely to be disastrous. But mm-hmm. you don't know that. You don't know that because you're more or less, you're just trapped within the wrong paradigm. What makes sense to you is in fact, doesn't correspond to what actually goes on in the in the real world. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, as you know, I'm optimistic that we can you know, bridge this knowledge and practice archipelago by bringing science into the organization. And, you know, organizations are often very good at looking at science from a data perspective when it comes to A-B testing certain launches. They're they're often less interested from a cultural perspective in terms of how they self-organize, when in fact, how they self-organize is probably the most important thing they could do. It for from especially yeah. from a long long term perspective, you know you're you're building the scaffolding and architecture of your organization. It's really important that you're familiar with these ideas. I'd like to talk a little bit about the mission of any organization, including uh, uh, Shopify, based on our yeah. previous conversations. And sure. uh, because because the business world is so um, trapped within the the paradigm of the uh, shareholder model and the in, invisible hand, the idea that mm-hmm. its only responsibility is to maximize profits. Uh, and that leads to a whole suite of behaviors which become part of the problem. Uh, so what's the alternative? And I think based on our conversations that uh, on your own, uh, you arrived at something which was much more ecosystemic mm-hmm. in which you see the the welfare and survival and profitability of Shopify as through as best accomplished by creating an ecosystem that supports it. And right. so the goal is like you want Shopify to be around 100 years from now. That's yeah. very different than, than than quarterly profits. So maybe you could speak to you know how you came by that, because it's definitely what's needed is the corporate mentality must be one in which the corporation is a very large actor in a larger world and must function as a solid citizen in that world. Mm -hmm. Yep. That is, Um, that is. Yeah. 
It, no, I, I agree. And, you know, it's certainly not my idea. Um, the fact that we are an ecosystem company um, often, uh, I think it might even been Bill Gates line, or it was at least described. Um, Microsoft was described as passing the Gates line. And this, this idea is that um, more folks in their ecosystem. So in Microsoft's case, I believe it was resellers. Um, those, those constituents made money, more money than uh, Microsoft proper. And when that happens, uh, a business is said to pass the Gates line, meaning that is it, its ecosystem and its dependencies and its constituencies um, gain more revenue than the parent company itself, right? And so that's, again, I just want to point out that, you know, Shopify is not unique in seeing the world this way. Um, and as you know, um, there was just a, a, a Fortune 500 um document signed, I think, before Christmas, overturning the old sort of Friedman-esque attitude of um, shareholder uh, primacy. So we're, we're certainly not unique in the world again. Um, and, and also because I think it's, it's common sense. I don't think anyone who ran a publicly traded company thought that their job was exclusively to deliver shareholder value. And, and they, I think anyone who had you know, their managerial chops understood that it was a very complex balance between ensuring all the stakeholders, your customers, your employees, your supply chain, anyone who's run a business, and, and this is true for hundreds of years, understands the long-term play. Again, th this sort of Friedman-esque um, shareholder primacy, as we, as we touched on at the beginning of this conversation, I think was an, you know, a mid 20th century uh, mythology that, that I, I don't think even bears scrutiny of common sense and how people actually behaved. So I, I'm, I'm, and maybe I share optimism with you that I, I think, you know, given a, a new heuristic and a new metaphor and, and, and new, and a new scientific paradigm, I think uh, businesses will embrace this. Um, now, one of the things that helped us is I guess we had this intuition all the way along from very early days. Um, you know, we had a conceit right from, uh, from the earliest foundation of the company that we wanted to last a hundred years. Right. And so that time frame is, is very important when you're making decisions along a hundred year time frame, then you begin to take a much more holistic view. So for example, even conversations like the one you and I are having, uh, are deemed important because it's not, it's, you know, we're not leading to customer success and shareholder value right now. We're trying to tease out really important things about how the company should work. And that's everyone at an organization has that responsibility and obligation to have those conversations with people. So um, again, I, I, I don't think, I don't think we're special <clears throat> hothouse orchids here, David. I think a lot of people are seeing uh, business this way these days. Yes. So first of all, thank you for that. Uh, but I want to push back a little bit. Certainly you're not unique. Uh, but I do think that there's something paradigmatic about what we're talking about. Uh, and let's spend just a minute talking about what the philosopher Tom, Thomas Kuhl, Kuhn meant by uh, a paradigm. They're configurations of ideas that are kind of self-reinforcing so that it's if you're operating within them, it's hard to go beyond them. Right. And I do think there's something paradigmatic about the shareholder value 
model. I've heard it said many times that nobody really believes in that. But no, I think yeah. actually I've heard it many more times that, well, actually, yes, they do for the most part, uh, right. or many do. And uh, it leads to a very short-term time horizon. It leads to a privileging oh. of, of, of profit-making and so on. So there's your one paradigm. And then there's the other paradigm that uh, Shopify falls within. And you're right, it's not the only one, thank heavens. Um, but it's still, I would think, still in the minority mm. and, uh, and needs to grow, basically. It needs to replace that other um, yeah. uh, paradigm and needs to stretch. No, I and needs to stand on strong legs because when we talk mm -hmm. about like what authorizes a paradigm, the other paradigm has seemed to rest upon a very strong foundation, the whole edifice of orthodox economics. As it turns right. out, that's a house of cards. Well, mm -hmm. what does the our paradigm stand on? What's it what does it rest upon? We actually have a legitimate scientific foundation for our paradigm, but one that needs to be articulated and as forcefully and as to be as as public and conspicuous as mm -hmm. the uh, as the uh, uh, edifice of orthodox economics. And so that's one of the things we're building and is and needs to be built is this strong, strong scientific foundation. You might think it's just like, oh, that's just the Ivy Tower. Who cares about that? No way. Well, this is actually I, I, this is the foundation upon which our practices are built and justified to everyone. I, as you know, I, I certainly do not think that. I, I think actually scrutinizing your epistemic foundation as an organization might be the most important thing you do because without you know, without being built on strong uh, ideological foundations and 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 sound scientific principles, you're 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 axiomatically going to be in the wrong direction. So, um, you, you know, and I think that, you know, there's another side conversation, which is, I think more and more organizations are going to see having these conversations as well. And of course, as you know, this is a goal that you and I and a few other scientists have bridging again, you said this sort of practice to theory archipelago, like there, the conversation you and I are having should be a conversation that most mid-level managers are having with thoughts and ideas about how to better their organization. And it is, and well, it, it, it is what I think we're both you and I are trying to do is dispel the myth that this is a, this is a difficult esoteric and useless conversation to have. Totally. I mean, this should be taught in business school from day one. Yeah. There's one point, right? There's one point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, with that, um, why don't we jump? Uh, I have an Askify with a bunch of people who have questions, and we can just use those to jump off and 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 continue this conversation. Are you okay with that, David? Sure, sure. And I just I have them ranked here in live, so I haven't seen many of them yet. And I'm just going to okay. So here here's the first question by Amy Conroy. Many of the general public are currently looking to Shopify for help to save their businesses and protect their livelihoods during this time. In your opinion, what altruistic approaches should we be taking internally and externally to ensure that we're helping our merchants to the best of our abilities? Right. Um, and Amy, oh, so this is uh, Amy's. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that uh, I see the opportunity of working with uh, 
Shopify as a, as a twofold opportunity. One is the organization itself, and then there's the many, many, many other businesses that the organization uh, reaches. What is it, a million? Yeah, yeah, over a million. I, and, I, and I just, I, I think what Amy's question is asking is like, what should Shopify be doing? And I think she's hinting at like, spe specifically what altruistic things should we be doing? for our merchants and for our employees. And one of the things I just want to unpack, and this is just a semantic issue I have with altruistic, which is, um, you know, should we be behaving altruistically? Is that even possible? But like, what does multi-level selection tell us about how we should behave to our merchants now and how to our, behave to our employees now? Uh, well, I tend to favor the word prosocial over altruistic because altruistic has a right. strong connotation of self-sacrifice. And prosocial, right. really what we're working towards is cooperation, basically, which works well for the cooperator. So there need not be right. uh, much uh, at the end of the day when things are configured, you do well by doing good. And I think right. that um, what, uh, what Shopify can do for its clients uh, in general terms, is in the first place, help the clients become stronger as businesses at whatever they're trying to do. I mean, you don't filter uh, your businesses on the basis of their social purpose. If someone's selling, you know, nail polish, well, mm -hmm. good for them. Yep. Uh, and your yep. job is to help them sell nail polish better. And in order to do that, right. then uh, their groups, uh, large and small, and so any tools that you can provide that you've uh, that you've uh, developed internally, uh, I'd love that service to be extended to uh, to uh, client groups. There's something else though. There's more than this. It's more related to the pandemic. That uh, mm -hmm. uh, which is that uh, as we move forward, and we really have to, we realize we have to structure our societies to to um, uh, uh, protect ourselves against future pandemics then yep. uh, social distancing, uh, I should say physical distancing, and uh, there's a very important distinction to yep. be made between physical distancing, that's what's needed to protect yourself from disease, and social yep. distancing, which we need to avoid whenever possible. We need to become socially right. close, uh, but while making physically, while remaining physically distanced. What this means is there's yes. gonna be an enormous priority to organizing value chains and, and supply chains in a way right. that maintains physical distancing. That's mm -hmm. what's something which is probably never going to go back. And so right. uh, there's an enormous, I have a colleague, an economist colleague named um, Dennis Snower, who's written a, a Brookings Institute report that I'll make available uh, to you. But, but he, calls, he calls the current moment the great economic mismatch. And that what mm. we need to do, develop economically, is just totally different than the previous economy. And one of that is to reorganize the entire economy to to uh, to, to take place through physical distancing as much as as much as possible. And uh, you could be at right. the but basically realizing that as a as a um, as a priority is something that you could do. Uh, but there's something in our conversation, Toby, so far that uh, that uh, we haven't touched upon yet. We've touched upon the core design principles, but we have not yet touched upon psychological flexibility. Uh, 
which mm. uh, is a very important part of of, uh, of pro-social, as I know from our other conversations that you've appreciated. Yep. And let me introduce yep. that by just pointing out that uh, every year we make our New Year's resolutions and every year we fail to keep them. Sure. So having an aspiration is not good enough, it turns out. Right. And that turns out to be true at the group level in addition to the individual level. If we decide, for example, that we want to implement the core design principles better, well, that's like saying we want to lose weight. Right. That's, a, that's hmm. an aspiration, but how do we do it? Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that becoming more flexible, more adaptable in evolutionary terms mm-hmm. is another skill that can be taught. It's part of Darwin's toolkit. Right. And those and those flexibility tools, not only can they be used for their business, but they can be used for any purpose, including adapting to the stress of the pandemic in any context. Right. You in your home, mm-hmm. managing your own thoughts and feelings, right. being there with your family and, and loved ones, trying to do things. These are enormous stressful situations, and there's proven tools for helping people cope with those situations. It's part of what can be taught. I mean, mm-hmm. before, before the pandemic, we were teaching these in a business context. Right. Like, let's be flexible enough to incorporate the core design principles. Now we can teach them in other contexts. Let's be flexible enough so that we could actually roll with the punches yeah. when it comes to yeah. this weird situation that we're, that we're in. So that's another, I think, answer to Amy's question. And yeah. I'll, I'll try to keep my next ones shorter than that. Oh, no, no, no. I, <laughs> I, I was right along with you there. I, I, and just to pile on, um, what I, what I love, um, you know, it's not, altruism it's a type of reciprocity for the cooperators uh, meaning that's what prosociality is 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 just a, another way of saying what a market is right markets are markets should behave with deep reciprocity for all participants and and in a way we we want to avoid altruism which is in fact a, a type of a type of virtue signaling of your own suffering and what we want to and what we want to behave, how we want to behave is not altruistically, either as individuals or as companies, but as enmeshed and entangled in a network of cooperation beneficial to all cooperators. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the metaphor of an organism, a superorganism, uh, conveys that nicely, and also a multicellular superorganism. So, right. in a, in a, like you and me, we're composed of trillions of cells. Mm-hmm. When we're healthy, we function wonderfully as a whole organism only because all of our cells function well as well. And so a cell in a human society is a relatively small group. And if it's healthy and if it's in a healthy multicellular social organism, then it is nourished as part of the Mm -hmm. organism. No altruism there uh, in the sense of being uh, sacrificial. Yep. No, absolutely. Um, okay. We'll go to the next question here by Ryan Corkum. Is it possible humanity's response will lead to peacetime in a post COVID world due to the values of pro-sociality being necessary to survive the current crisis? Do you think the world will embrace this way of thinking once the threat has been neutralized? Uh, my short answer to that is I, I hope so. That's the best yeah. case scenario because after all, uh, what the pandemic did was, 
reveal the fault lines that existed before the pandemic. Right. Uh, and so uh, if we really pay attention, then what the pandemic has caused us to do will then become uh, applied to all of the problems that existed previously. So that's what we should all be working towards. At the same time, we can't be sanguine about it because there's so many ways in which that could fail to happen. And so we need to work hard to make that happen, but that's exactly mm -hmm. what we need to do. From a, from a multi-level selection perspective, um, the fact that uh, you know we're sort of tribal, clannish folks and that we have hundreds of thousands of years of evolved history of competing against one another, we now have like the Ur competitor that competes against all humanity in this pandemic. There is some thought, Jonathan Haidt and I had some speculation of, is that enough to actually fuse some universal sort of um, humanity into to one group? Do you have any speculation on that? I think the most positive thing to say is that uh, the way we're designed and have been designed by genetic and cultural evolution is to be amazingly flexible in the groups that we create for ourselves. Most of our groups are socially constructed. And this was right. true even way back at the beginning where, mm -hmm. yes, we, we, we existed in small groups, but those groups were usually embedded in tribes yeah. of several thousand people. And by virtue of the tribal symbols and, and, um, and cultural uh, toolkit, common language and all of that, that we could actually remain peaceable uh, I mean, the tribe was a very important unit in addition to our smaller groups. Right. And so uh, we've proven flexible enough to have social identities that now are in the hundreds of millions and even over a billion right. individuals. And so against that background, establishing a global identity is well within the repertoire of human behavior. Right. And, and, and just there's plenty of people that already have a global identity. So. So right. I don't see that as an as a uh, as an insurmountable factor, not at all. I think that uh, we could have a global identity, and that should and we should do. And so, so COVID nineteen might be a catalyst to that global identity because, again, multi level selection says, you know, we have needed an enemy, or 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 we have provided one another with an enemy over eons here, and now we have one, and that should be able to put us in a position where we see everyone as in a sort of universal sorority or fraternity. And to your, to your point, like um, if, if a billion people can do it, uh, I assume you're you know talking about large nation states that are relatively homogenous where um, Chinese people would see themselves as sort of um, you know one entity at least, or may maybe even the EU is an example where people feel like they have a common identity of you know under half a billion people. That, that's sort of what you're alluding to, David? Yeah, and if you look at the broad sweep of history, you find, of course, that the uh, the scale of human society has increased, but with many reversals along the way. Of course. And Peter Turchin is the person to read on that, among yeah. um, among um, others. And I think that when it comes time to a global identity, that's like a mental construct. Mm -hmm. It sort of falls within the bin of the first core design principle: a strong sense of identity and purpose. Who are we? Yep. We're everyone on the planet Earth. Right. We are humanity. So you have to start thinking that way, but you won't get far without the other core design principles. And whenever 
I hear people talking about like, you know, the aliens from outer space are needed to pull us together, or in this case, right. a pandemic disease. Uh, I feel like saying, well, yeah, maybe a little, but the profiteering begins immediately and always has. Sure. Always has is taking place mm -hmm. at this moment. How are we spending those trillions of dollars that we, that Congress has uh, right. authorized? And so if you don't have those protections, uh, for uh, ensuring cooperation. And this actually, mm -hmm. we need to uh, connect a couple of dots here, Toby, because uh, uh, what the courtesan principles do is they suppress the potential for disruptive within group selection. That playing the single game of monopoly, well, the core design principles make that difficult. And so they tilt the deck, mm -hmm. uh, the playing field in favor of teamwork and yep. against uh, and that's needed at all scales. So in mm -hmm. addition to adopting a global identity, we also have to adopt all those other core design principles, a challenge which is daunting, but possible. Yeah, no, oh, fantastic. Okay, we'll go to another question here by Aaron Olson. Uh, given that you are, a, you are subject to the constant pressures of multi-level selection, how do you personally find meaning as an individual? And, you know, I think you can answer that as you, David Sloan Wilson, or as, you know, homo sapiens. How do we find meaning as individuals, given that we're subjected to multi-level selections? Well, I can speak for myself and I can speak scientifically mm -hmm. that uh, we are at our best and also feel at our best when we are taking part in some cause that is we regard as larger than ourselves, to be engaged right. in some activity that requires working with others, for that to be important, and for our role to be identified as an important role, that's what it means to be fulfilled as a person for most people. It lies behind the religious impulse. Yep. It's what makes war it what makes war the most profound positive experience yep. for so many soldiers. It what makes sports teams so so uh, compelling, and so you don't lose your individuality. I think an important point to make, a very important point that this question has raised, is that the the uh, architecture of a cooperative group, even at the smallest scale, has a huge component of individualism in addition to uh, groupism, that on the one hand, the individual is a member of a group and they're doing something in common. But on the other hand, the individual is an agent within the group, has a say within the group, refuses to be pushed around within the group. And mm -hmm. so therefore, there's uh, nothing mindless about the role of the individual in a group uh, enterprise. And so that's a wonderful thing to say that the basic, what we associate with democratic governance is not just like some new cultural form, it's part of the essence of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you and I have spent some time speculating on on what I call the five M's and their relationship. This nested relationship between individuals, which you could call the me, and how they they are nested up in turn against to a small parochial group, um, what we can call a micro group of sort of ten. You know, and you're and you know the observation is that around the 10 group size seems to be optimal and probably was for hundreds of thousands of our years of our evolved history because they were hunting pattern uh, parties or 
you know, small extended families or, and again, not a surprise that as weekend warriors, almost all of our sports teams are around that size, juries, et cetera. And then that in turn, those groups are often nested up into, into meso groups. You know, famously the eponymous Dunbar number around of 150. There's some speculation again that we spent a long time, maybe most of our evolved history in groups of that size. And that seems to be very, we seem to be very comfortable in those group size. And those groups again are nested up into macro groups, you know, where we see maybe the modern organization. And those groups ideally nested again into some meta group. And, you know, whether, you know, some either some spiritual group or some nation state where your um, entry into those groups aren't obvious by potentially by skin color or tribe or all the other uh, um, parochial points. Um, any, any thoughts on this, that sort of nested relationship and, and um, what multi-level selection might say about those? Well, that's the essence of multi-level selection is that uh, those nested relations exist and, and basically right. web-like relations also. Um, and it seems so very complicated, so very daunting. Uh, but in my book, This View of Life, I observed that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, um, each and every one of us is composed of trillions of cells with billions being renewed daily. We also have our microbiomes composed of thousands of species numbering in the trillions of individuals that participate in the economy of the body right. with a precision that puts the Swiss watch to shame. And so, you know, a planet with merely only 8 billion individuals, I mean, really, we should be able to coordinate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, well, well put, well put. Um, next question from Wyatt Galley. What pitfalls do you foresee corporations falling into applying the core design principles? I think if a corporation wholeheartedly uh, attempts to adopt the core design principles and otherwise uh, manages cultural evolution uh, in a collaboration with scientists such as uh, John Hyden and myself, that this will lead to a surge of improved performance. Uh, and so that's the really good news. I think the challenges that will be faced is we're getting from here to there. And uh, uh, basically the change that will be required to do that. And I think that in most corporations, I can't speak for uh, Shopify, uh, those challenges will be especially severe with the uh, upper management. Uh, because in any group that is hierarchical and where there is a strong power differential, then it's very difficult for the most powerful members of a group to relinquish some of that power. And so speaking mm -hmm. uh, across the board, I think that these things will prove themselves first at relatively lower levels, those two pizza teams and the and so on, and that they need to be implemented throughout, which isn't to say that there shouldn't be a structure and that that structure might actually often be hierarchical, as long as mm -hmm. there is bottom-up control in addition to top-down control so that accountability exists across the um, across the board. So that's the challenge, I think, is, uh, mm -hmm. is to get from here to there uh, or from there to here uh, at all levels of the organization. Yeah. You, you, 
you spoke a phrase which I'm just interested in unpacking a little bit. It was managed cultural evolution. And, and there's a lot in that, in those three words. It, one is the implication that uh, evolution isn't a fait accompli. It's once we know the mechanism, we can actually manage it ourselves like, like someone tending a garden. Do you, do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Because often there's this idea that evolution means um, a prescribed outcome that you can't change. It takes us back to those tired arguments of nature and nurture, uh, which we didn't touch on. But but even now, I'm sure there's people listening to us thinking, you know, we're embracing some strange form of um, predestination, misogyny, eugenics, or or something like that. But that's not at all what you're suggesting. Do you, do you want to just riff a little bit on managed cultural evolution? Sure, and we have to, uh, this is a good moment to uh, point out how radical this is from the standpoint of conventional evolutionary thinking. Right. That uh, among my evolutionary colleagues, especially back when evolution was gene-centric, and in my profession, evolution is still primarily gene-centric, by the way. Mm -hmm. Those that have expanded have gone back to basics. Uh, there's a large number of us, but still a tiny fraction of the economics profession before we even get to other uh, professions. And one of the strongest dogmas of standard evolutionary biology is that evolution has no purpose. There's nothing conscious about evolution. Evolution is just blind variation. It's only the environment that selects. That's one of the strongest dogmas that you were taught right. in um, courses in evolutionary biology. Here what we're saying is that evolution can be a conscious process. And in the case of human evolution, always has been to a degree, although there has always also been a strong unconscious aspect to human cultural evolution. What does that mean? It means that cultural evolution takes the form of many inadvertent social experiments, a few that hang together and mm. most that fall apart. And those that hang together, they work without anyone knowing how they work. Most enduring cultures, such as religions or even corporate cultures, yep. yeah, they work because they're the survivors. But does anyone know how they work? Can anyone articulate it? Well, actually, right. no. And so, but what's needed is for cultural evolution to be more intentional than ever before. And the fact that it can be intentional is no argument against it being an evolutionary um, process. One thing I say again and again is that cultural evolution is going to take place whether we want it to or not. If we don't manage it, it will take us where we don't want to go. It will generate the problems, not the solutions. And in, on my online magazine, This View of Life, there's a series of essays by one of my most respected colleagues, Tony Biglin. In this series of essays, I wrote the introduction uh, for it is, is titled The Cultural Evolution of Social Pathologies. This is yeah. unmanaged cultural evolution. What does that get you? Right. It gets you the tobacco industry. It gets you big pharma. It gets you the food industry. It gets you the arms industry. It gets you obscene income inequality. That's what it gets you. And right. so unless we take control of it, and of course we do it in a consensus manner, then evolution will assuredly take us where we don't want to go. And so the management is absolutely required. There is no mm. alternative to becoming wise managers of evolutionary processes. Mm -hmm. Does my metaphor of tending a garden make sense to you? Yeah, it does indeed. And uh, it's a metaphor that's been used as early as uh, Thomas Huxley in his book on ethics. 
right. uh, his essay on ethics uh, basically said, as I just did, uh, evolution doesn't make everything nice. Evolution results in all sorts of things that would be just horrible for us to live within and is horrible. Mm -hmm. And so we have to tend nature like a garden. We have to tend our own cultures like a garden. The gardening metaphor is a good one. And uh, another person who uses it is Nick Hanauer and Eric Liu in their little book, The Gardens of Democracy, uh, which is uh, a very nice expression, quite well informed by evolution and complexity. The Gardens of Democracy by Nick Hanauer and Eric okay. Liu. I'll take a look at that. Um, we'll move to uh, another question, David. This one from Ben Doyle. The stakes in biological evolution are pretty high for individuals, literally life and death. Do the stakes need to be this high for individuals in other evolutionary systems to gain to get the same overall benefits as in biology? Do gentler selection pressure, pressures still give us positive adaptive results for the collective? What are the trade-offs? I find this a fascinating question. It is. It's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, and let me answer it in a, as briefly as I uh, as I can. Uh, we have another little series of essays titled Darwinizing the uh, Federalist Papers coming out in, uh. in uh, TVAL, which does the redo to the Federalist uh, Papers. And in this brief series of essays, uh, we talk about uh, uh, the way Darwin thought about competition. And it's really fascinating because Darwin was much more sophisticated than to think of competition as always harsh. Um, you know, the stakes pretty, pretty high. It can certainly be that way and often is. But he talked about competition in what he said, a large and metaphorical sense. Mm -hmm. uh, a drought resistant plant outcomes the drought susceptible plant in the desert, even though the plants never interact. Right. Uh, things like uh, things like that. And so uh, in the human realm, we can definitely implement benign forms of competition and really need to because when we say that we need to, that change is required, we need to have like radical cultural evolution. What that means is we need to identify the new practices and implement them real fast. Mm -hmm. We need to do the new things, not the old things. There's your competition. But exactly yeah. how individuals fare in that competitive process can be, uh, there can be a good safety net. And let me point mm -hmm. out that uh, there's a lot of variation among nations uh, in this regard. And we've made a special study of the Nordic countries, including Norway. And Norway has a compressed wage range. What that means is that there's a very high minimum wage and a pretty low maximum wage. And over there in Norway, a CEO doesn't make 500 times as much as the average employee. If it's a 17-fold differential, that's, that's regarded as pretty distasteful. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is, is that when the economy changes and we need to phase out some sectors and we need to phase in other sectors, the individual worker can leave the job and I, I forgot to mention, there's a great social safety net. So if you leave a job and you're unemployed for a while, it's not so bad for you. Mm -hmm. And it's not even stigmatizing. And that means you can retrain for another job. So that is enabling uh, rapid constructive cultural change in a way that is not harsh for the individual. It right. can be done. Yep. No, I, 
I'm in total agreement. You know, you, you mentioned earlier um, Peter Turchin and in his, his great tome, War and Peace and War, he right. outlines how, how we have been uh, built by war. And this is, this is Ben's point about severe uh, evolutionary pressure on a, on a group. So we've been we've been built under those circumstances, but that doesn't mean we need to continue to live under them, and create an environment yeah. of social Darwinism. In fact, social yeah, Darwinism, and such things as yeah, sorry, social Darwinism is a is a is a is a great slight to Darwin and to evolution. It, it was a it, it is a misreading of of what our responsibilities are as evolved cultural social creatures. Not only is it a misreading of Darwin, big time, but it's a misreading of the entire history of Darwinism. And in the same series of Darwinizing the Federalist Papers, there's another short essay, which what it shows is, and there's a lot of scholarship behind this, mm -hmm. is that the first people to grab onto Darwin's theory of evolution were the socialists. Right. Like Peter Kropotkin and, and others, he wasn't the only one. And what they said is that, oh boy, Here's what Darwin's theory says to me. The old autocratic order is not fixed. Sure. Things can improve. And so uh, socialist Darwinism came first. Yeah. And then this nature red and uh, claw variety actually yeah. followed almost as a reaction to right. the socialist Darwinism. So there's wonderful social history to be had there. Well, this is, this is a, that's a nice entree to this next question, I think. Um, by Ryan Corkum, are there any common misinterpreta misinterpretations, applications, or perversions of your work that irritate you? <laughs> and I, I say that because if, if evolution is the greatest idea ever, I, I guess everyone has their own Darwin. What, what are versions of David Sloan Wilson's group selection that, or misuse of that idea that really irritate you? Well, I mean, personally, the history of multi-level selection, which I've been a participant in for over 45 years, has been uh, a great frustration because the transition from the old to the new uh, should be simple. Conceptually, it's simple. It certainly is in retrospect. But oh boy, oh boy, uh, the slowness of the process. Uh, and it's still incomplete. It's still incomplete. And one of the things that uh, irritates me most is the creation of uh, old wine and new bottles. That new terms will be coined, terms such as social selection or fitness interdependence or, or um, holobiont selection for microbiomes. And it is just multi-level selection described in other words. This goes all the way back to selfish gene theory. And um, there's two major concepts in selfish gene theory, the concept of genes as replicators, but then there's the concept of vehicles. Mm -hmm. And in the concept of vehicles, selfish gene theory gives back exactly what it took away. But decades have been required in order to reveal that. And it's still confusing among people, famous people like Steve, like Steve Pinker and, and Richard Dawkins, who will never change his mind mm -hmm. ever, ever. So uh, it's been frustrating to me that, uh, that this uh, paradigmatic change has taken as long as it has and has been as messy as it has, even among the cognoscenti. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would echo that. Okay. And another question here also from Ryan Corkum. 
Um, what role does media play in today's environment in being a force for good or bad as it relates to pro-sociality? An example of a negative pro-social agenda is the proliferation of reporting on panic buying, often invoking a me-first principle. Does selective or sens sensationalistic reporting inhibit pro-social behaviors? Right, another good question. And what I'd say in brief on that is that if we look at the internet age, what we find is a brave new world of social interactions. And within that world, we find everything from the best to the worst. Right. And Ryan has pointed out some of the worst, real pathologies that are resulting on the internet. But let's mm -hmm. also take note of some of the best, including reputational systems that enable us to drive in the cars and stay in the homes of total strangers. And so what's exciting about this, I think, in this brave new world, is that it's subject to the same social laws as all social interactions. And so Darwin's toolkit can be used to tame the Wild West of the internet age um, as soon as we know how to, to apply it. And so I'm optimistic that the internet age can actually lead to the global superorganism is needed for that. Could not have a global superorganism without electronic communication. But it's once again, something that must be deliberately constructed, a managed process of cultural evolution at the global scale. And if we don't do that, then it all goes where we don't want to go. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. Um, next question from Wyatt Galley. How can our early life systems encourage pro-social development and behaviors from an earlier age? Gosh, I'm not sure I know exactly what the meaning of that is. So I'm going to take a stab at it. I mean, uh, maybe my, Toby, you could. Uh, my interpretation is like, you know, from a parenting or educational perspective, are there things we can do for children earlier? That was my interpretation to make them more pro-social. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely, yes. I mean, because these ideas are so potent and are so domain general, then they apply to early child development and education uh, just as much. I could tell many stories about the best uh, optimal forms of early childhood uh, development, including the importance of such things as unstructured play. I mean, the kind of the kind of life that uh, our grandparents lived, you know. Uh, you know, my mom told me to go out and play and don't come back until dinner. Uh, it turns out that not only was that just the way it was back then, but it was the great way to be because that then enabled people to form their own social relationships, learn how to socially regulate themselves and so on and so forth. Right. But in addition to that, I want to give another answer, which is that uh, uh, yet another series on this view of life that we're, we're writing is titled uh, From the Origin of Life to the internet age, and it actually does connect what I just said about the internet age all the way back to the origin of life as a series of major transitions. And so there's actually much to be learned about these earlier purely biological major transitions, including, and I think this is fascinating, the evolution of nervous systems and multicellular organisms as the first internet. Right. What is a nervous system but electronic communication coordinating the activities of the parts of the mm -hmm. organism? And so that's so there's a lot to be gained from the general concept of major evolutionary transitions 
what we have learned from the previous ones that were purely biological and how we can apply that knowledge of early life systems to this final transition to a global superorganism. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good, it's a good analogy. Um, okay, a couple more questions here. Um, Daniel Height asks, to date, have you observed pro-social tendencies between governments addressing COVID-19? Uh, yes, to a degree. There's been quite a lot of international uh, uh, mm -hmm. cooperation, and we're, and we're seeing a lot of interstate uh, cooperation. What we're seeing now is like a textbook example of, of multi-level selection in both its good and bad aspects, that we can get you know, very large policies, such as states or nations, cooperating with each other, realizing that there has some larger goal that they're, they're eager to play a supporting role in. And then we get the opposite of that. We get the obstructionists. And, uh, and uh, I'm not going to use the T word, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. I, I do very much so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Here's an interesting question um, from Justin Rice. How has working with E.O. Wilson impacted your work and how you think? Well, Ed and I, uh, he published my first article on group selection right. way back uh -huh. and uh, in, in uh, the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Then we didn't interact too much until we co-authored our 2007 paper on rethinking the theoretical foundation of socio biology and so right. we teamed up for we teamed up for that so i have the highest regard for uh, ed but that doesn't prevent me from criticizing him in some respects where, where do you gets in, yeah where do you depart with uh, eo wilson's thinking well he teamed up later on with uh, martin nowak mm -hmm. and others uh and uh and gave a critique of uh inclusive fitness theory which was um uh, failed to reflect the concept of equivalence, which we haven't discussed by name yet. But uh, basically, mm -hmm. what equivalence says is that if you have different theories, it could be that they're just differences in perspective. Uh, they're not actually making different causal claims. They're just accounting for uh, evolutionary change in different ways. And mm -hmm. that's the right way to think about uh, some of the so-called alternatives to group selection, such as kin selection and game theory. These are actually not... Uh, they're different perspectives. They're not different. They're not making different causal claims. Mm -hmm. That's a very important concept to grasp um, in resolving the group selection controversy. And Ed, for all that I uh, respect him for, has actually failed to grasp that concept with his, his work with Martin uh, Nowak. And another thing is that it, it sometimes the controversy takes the form of kind of uh, who's got the best mathematical formalism. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And that's uh, that's not what we need to be discussing. Right. Uh, these are all kind of um, uh, advanced questions. Yeah, I, I mean, I, my introduction to E.O. Wilson was through consilience. And as uh, yeah. you know, I, I come from the other side of the uh, of the academy. I'm a I'm a failed philosophy major. So consilience was a uh, uh, fantastic introduction to how that archipelago you talk about can be overcome. Yeah, well, I mean, what Ed is great at is visioning whole fields of inquiry. Mm -hmm. He's like a prophet. Yeah. He says, "Go there," and and uh, but the degree of concreteness in terms of actually parachuting into those different topics 
and then uh, actually working on the ground is something that uh, that's uh, sometimes left for others. And that's not a bad thing to say, but I think it's an accurate description of the way that uh, the level at which Ed Wilson sure. functions. Sure, sure, yeah. Okay, so last question, and then I'll and then I'll, I have a few more questions for you to end off here. This this one's from Justin Rice again. How does shared identity and purpose work at multiple levels of group to group collaboration? Is there a limit to the number of identities a person can connect with in a meaningful way, i.e., my town, my country, my county, my state, uh, etc.? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, the most important thing to say is how darn flexible we are, and how many of these groups. We can keep in mind. Right. Uh, uh, that's astonishing that we can recognize the context mm -hmm. and to behave appropriately for all of these groupings. And of course, there there will be a limit, mm -hmm. and they do have to be coordinated with each other. So when I have my identity of my town, for example, and take it with the context of global warming. Um, okay. I mean, I could be a I could be an active member of my town in a lot of ways. I could try to develop, uh, you know, the economy of my town, uh, but maybe I might do that in a way that wasn't good for climate change. So right. please let me have an identity for my town or my neighborhood or my family or myself that's consilient, to use your word, with the global goals. So this yeah. uh, this kind of coordination that the, the lower levels must be appropriately coordinated with the higher levels all the way up to the, to the, um, to the top, the globe. Is that another way of saying that's the obligation of leaders in an organization to to coordinate um, the collaboration between all its various groups and functions? Maybe, but I think that we, when we use the word leader, we sometimes uh, have unstated assumptions. For example, that there must be a leader, yeah. that that leader must be designated which is like a you know you're imposing a top-down structure. That right. um, what's the alternative? Well, in a small group setting, uh, uh, typically there's so much participation among all members that um, uh, when you do need a leader, and often you do, well, they kind of emerge or they're chosen or mm. or, or something like that, and they certainly function in the context of coordinating group activities. So uh, uh, I think that we just need to be mindful of that kind of consideration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in closing, I just have a few questions for you. Um, let's go back to my hypothesis that this is, um, you know, epoch defining times and historians a hundred years hence will say, yes, everything changed um, in the wake of COVID-19. Um, what, what thing might change for good? What things might change for bad? And what do you, what do you think will stay the same as a result? Well, optimistically, uh, I'd like to think that globalism is here for good, that we realize mm -hmm. that our, our problems are systemic, irretrievably at the global uh, uh, scale. And yet, as we've seen, many of the solutions, and this is not a contradiction, is to become more local. Yep. I mean, maybe the way to handle the pandemic is to you know, have more local food production systems. Right. At that point, we could have more regenerative agriculture. I wouldn't mind in the least, on the basis of my experience, traveling less by air all over the world is the way I did it before, traveling to meetings, which means that I, I didn't interact that much with my immediate neighbors. 
I wouldn't mind in the least if I curtailed my travel right. after this and then to uh, have my physical social interactions be more local. Yeah. Or, or even a hub and spoke model like this, like you and I have met in person once. Um, and, but we talk like this, you know, many, many times. And I, I suspect that'll be a model that's replicated. You'll spend more intense times together, but that, but you'll also spend more frequent times like this. And those together times will anchor these times. Yeah. And also that the, that the, what's been made so immediate in the form of a pandemic will be, will, will learn to function the same way for the, for the, uh, problems that have only a slightly longer time scale. I mean, comparing the pandemic to global warming, I think is perfect. Mm -hmm. The, the effects of global warming are far more severe than the pandemic. Many, many more lives have already been lost due to the consequences of global warming than the pandemic will ever be taken by the pandemic. But, but, the, but because it takes place over a scale of decades, then it just doesn't register the same way, but mm -hmm. it should. And so I would love for not only for the whole earth focus to become permanent, but for us to be able to extend the the wise and cooperative things that we do to some of these only slightly longer scale global problems of the economy and the and the environment and mm -hmm. to not restrict it to um, uh, something as uh, immediate as a disease pandemic. Yeah. No, I, I again, I just want to highlight, you know, you, you hoped, as I do, that globalization is here to stay. And, you know, I just want to suggest again, it, it, it hopefully is here to stay, but not anchored on wishful thinking, you know, not not sort of fuzzy headed kumbaya thinking, but but here to stay because we understand the mechanisms of what can make it work. You know, you, there was a yeah, there was a great interview you did with uh, the Dalai Lama where where you very politely corrected him uh i think when he was talking about you know bodhisattva energy and what was required and you you started right. and you started suggesting well yes that would be good but here are the mechanisms you know we, we are paradoxical creatures we can't just be holy um so that's you've given us some great tools and okay on the um on the negative side, what, what, what could get worse? And, and I want you to highlight something that could get worse that we actually could do something about now that we know more of your science. Well, the worst case scenario was like a total collapse right. of the current economy, uh, something like you know, as bad or worse than the Great Depression that we have to climb out of mm -hmm. only slowly. And for, for basically social identities to become smaller, not, not larger, uh, for factionalism to win the day and for authoritarianism to to uh, win the day. And, you know, in complex systems theory, there's something called basins of attraction. Yep. Basically, configurations that are stable. They're not necessarily good. They're stable, not good, stable. And if we fall into a basin of attraction that is uh, deeply dysfunctional, it's still stable. Right. And climbing out of it? Not easy. Right. And so this is almost like a fire and brimstone service. If we walk the straight and narrow, we can get to a good place. Mm. If we don't, we could get to a really bad place. We can get to hell on earth in many, many different ways. So let that be an incentive to actually learn the learn the worldview and its practical tools that, mm. that enable us to get to that good place. Mm-hmm.
Well, fantastic. Well, I think we'll end it. We'll end it on that fire and, and brimstone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, listen, I, I really, uh, David, I really appreciate your time. It's always wonderful and enjoyable to hear uh, your thoughts and ideas. And hopefully we can, in our very modest way, implement some of these ideas to make our organization in the world a little better. So thanks again. Well, Thanks to you, and we should uh, tell our audience that uh, uh, very soon we're going to turn the tables, and I'm going to yeah. do a long podcast with you, so stay tuned <laughs> for that. Yeah, I, I'm sure they're queuing up as, as we speak. All right, David, listen, have a, have a wonderful afternoon and evening, and we'll chat again real soon. All right, thanks a lot. Yeah, bye-bye.